to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Oh, I'm really excited, Ed, because I know what we're going to talk about. Yep. Uh, as anyone listening to last week's episode will know, we're recording uh, a couple of episodes in advance, so there's no news this week. Instead, it's going to be all centred on a discussion about, uh, I'm going to say, one of the best American comedies of the last decade, a sorely underrated movie, and a movie that needs celebrating every day. It's pop star, never stop, never stopping. And uh, usually when we do a, a, a retrospective episode like this, it's usually when a movie has hit some sort of significant milestone, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But in my view, every day since the release of Popstar has been a significant milestone. And in fact, we're much too late in recognising what a hugely enjoyable fun and just all around banging comedy pop star never stop never stopping is no disagreement from me ed i mean we're finally doing the right thing mm. so for people who may not be familiar and uh i'm, I'm fair it's probably a fair few people because the movie was not successful pop star <laughs> never stop never stopping was a mockumentary re- uh, released in 2016 it's the first official movie from the Lonely Island team. They, they had done one semi-official movie in 2007 called Hot Rod, but that was them being dropped into a pre-existing property. This was the first movie that they, them being Andy Samberg, Kiefer Schaefer and Jumma Takone, made together uh, where they originated the whole concept of the script. And it, it feels very much like a Lonely Island movie because it focuses on this fictional rapper play, named Connor for real played by Andy Samberg and is kind of a showcase for everything that the Lonely Island do well you know which is weird absurdist comedy great hilarious comedy songs that are almost indistinguishable in places from real songs until you actually pay attention to the ridiculous lyrics and yeah it's just it's just such a a, a wonderfully realized comedic morsel you know it's so so good at capturing the feel of concert documentaries and documentaries about bands and it's just it's just so laden with great gags it's it's such a a funny movie and i'm so excited to talk about it me too it manages to do what some of the best snl sketches did as well and particularly what the lonely (laughs) island did in terms of the snl digital sketches which is just take constant pops at the Mm -hmm. current state of things and what it manages to do about celebrity and endorsements and management and the weirdly Tim Meadows' character who plays Connor for reals manager. He talks about riding the Mm -hmm. wave and sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. But then there is this like cycle as well to bands blowing up and then blowing out and managing to just hit punches at entourages and the shallowness of it all and the money behind it all so I think I said in a previous uh, discussion of uh, that we've had Ed is that I do think it's better than Spinal Tap because I think it manages to go that much further in pinpointing the excess of where we are now. Mm. 
Yeah, I was I was thinking about it yesterday as I was uh, rewatching it about you know because because Spinal Tap is often held up as the gold standard of of mockumentaries, particularly about bands of which there are you know there's not a huge number, but you know it, it certainly is the one that towers above all of them. And I I I, I would say that I think whilst they are both very very good, this one I think speaks to me more because yes. it is it so perfectly captures the era in which I am living, whereas Spinal Tap, being an incredibly funny movie, is always going to be tied to a a specific subgenre, you know, like bad, low-rent hair metal bands from the 80s, whereas this, because it is taking inspiration from so many contemporary documentaries about artists, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, the, the Justin Bieber documentary in it like the the title is a pun on the but just in beaver documentary uh the katie perry documentary that came out or the one direction documentary that was directed by morgan spurlock uh which provided the movie uh provided Popstar with some of its b-roll footage that you kind of see whenever there's like a crowd freaking out and you can't see andy sandberg on stage that's uh, just footage that one direction let them use which i thought was uh kind of cool of them to yeah. let them ha- have that because it does add that uh, element of verisimilitude to the whole enterprise and that i think has always been crucial to what the lonely island do like the reason why their songs have always been so good and and why they were such a breakout part of snl is that they really have massive the ability to mimic the things that they are parodying even if uh with you know a, a mixture of razor sharp incision incision and affection and i think that's key to what makes pop star a really standout comedy and, and why it so perfectly illustrates what they do Sorry, I was chuckling there at the phrase, you know, the One Direction documentary directed by Morgan Spurlock sort of made me feel a bit like a, and now Vin Benders mm. is directing a documentary about Pope Francis. You're like, okay, I guess. <laughs> I think you're right, Ed, like that, that you can make something that for all intents and purposes, you have to double take because for all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. whatever they do looks and sounds and feels like everything that they are, as you say, lampooning with a lot yeah. of affection. I do think there there are some more acerbic moments in Popstar. Never stop, never stopping. Mm. But it is generally done with a tongue-in-cheekness that I think means that they can attract so many cameos. Because it's yes. absolutely yeah. littered with people from the music industry who are more than welcome to take a pop at themselves because they know they're only going to come off the better for it. And I think really good satire kind of living in the age of fake news having something that at every point is telling you to be more critical of what you're looking at in whatever way either to watch something that's satire and have a laugh and and feel a bit more sane rather than be manipulated into something that's just simply not true i think you've totally hit the nail on the head in terms of this is spinal tap is still very funny but it is essentially dated now Mm. in terms of how far we've come but what i love about pop star never stop never stopping i might i may have to just say pop star sorry um yeah going forward i think we've all established what we're what i mean is how it manages to situate itself so like from the get-go where where it is in in time and space like hashtag doink to doink i particularly <laughs> love connor's youtube video diaries yes 
And I think this, I mean, this film is absolutely laden with gags. They are just like seeping out of it. It's so good. And one of my favourite is the fact that one of his videos, he's like, yo, yo, you know, just, I've just finished brushing my teeth. But the title of that video is Connor Brushes His Teeth, video four of 16. <laughs> <laughs> which, oh, which is not far off stuff like, you know, Will Smith and his, uh, his recent mm. YouTube revival. I mean, how close do we want to get, you know, having 50 cents, say, I think maybe a bit, <laughs> He's a bit too open with his fans. It's uh, one of my favourite comic moments for sure. Yeah, and then leading into him, uh, him doing like a, a an Instagram video just to his fans saying like, "Hey guys, just jerked off, <laughs> feeling real chill, feeling pretty mellow." <laughs> just like, with his dopey, dopey poster, solo coital eyes. Yeah, it's so good. The thing that I love about the way that um, the film sets itself up too is that it kind of moves in and out of this mockumentary style at the beginning it's very much like a mockumentary and you, you absolutely rattle through your setup but the thing that i like in terms of technology and where you are in time is the use of like home recording vhs tapes to see mm. how he and his other uh bandmates in the first band style boys and they are played by of course john mitaconi and uh, akiva schaefer lawrence and owen how they mm. grow up as together as kids and, and have this band and become wildly successful and uh i didn't realize how good a comic actor naz is like naz is so deadpan saying that the song karate kai changed his life (laughs) yeah that's that that was one of the jokes that made me laugh uh he's also responsible for the moment that made me laugh the loudest when i uh, saw it opening weekend and i i I felt a little self-conscious because no one else found this quite as funny as i did but (laughs) when he talks about um, Lawrence leaving Style Boys, he's like, uh, he says, the only other time I ever felt as sad as that was when Josh Charles got killed on the good way. <laughs> I also chuckle hard with that because that is definitely one of the saddest moments of my life too. He's, he's, he's so good at delivering that. And he's so, I think I think because here he has done, I think a lot of those kind of documentaries, this is also true of Questlove who has joked about how he's in yes. it because he's contractually obliged to be in every documentary. He's He's so good at kind of, mimicking the tone of that and you're right he is so deadpan and knows how people in these documentaries talk and because he knows that he doesn't oversell that there's a big joke coming uh, and that that's one of the reasons why he's so good he knows exactly how to pitch it my favorite one actually is the two the two front people of arcade fire as they're, <laughs> yeah, as they're discussing the donkey roll they're in it for a flash yeah. but they make it perfect like she's doing it he's saying oh yeah every high school dance would end with a donkey roll and it's this alternative version of history that you completely buy and it's Mm. very easy to kind of do that when you have enough people saying the same thing you start to be convinced i mean i i cannot recommend the album with the soundtrack from the film enough Mm. every single one is an absolute banger even if you are going to be like howling on the street because of uh connor gets to say pretty much whatever he wants on his second album uh his mm-hmm. first his first album thriller also that's a great that's a gag in itself what the fuck um yeah. his his second album conquest uh he's basically got free free license to say whatever the fuck he wants and what he really wants to say is that he can't understand why everyone loves the Mona lisa because she looks like a garbage pail kid <laughs> In a sort of uh, false, like, really uh, wrenching um, bridge bridge bit that he's singing. Oh, it's just, the so- the songs are so good. 
throughout mm. even uh Lawrence as he as he breaks off after uh, creative differences between himself and Connor and he writes a kind of angsty rap song listing various objects that are in his jeep and uh, yeah. I think I think it's Naz again he's like I couldn't yeah. I couldn't really relate because I have different things in my jeep <laughs> <laughs> oh God, the song the song's are so good I think there's the the lyrics to humble oh, are God. just so that the, they're so silly and funny but the song itself is such a propulsive song that like if you just played it for people and they think oh this is just like a really fun fast-paced rap song that has an adam yeah. levine hook but then you listen to the lyrics and it's like uh, I am at the top of the humble list. My apple cr- pie is the most. Cr- my apple crumble is the most crumblest. <laughs> Which isn't actually far off a lot of rap lyrics that you would hear. Mm, yeah, a lot of them where it's like slight slant rhymes. It's like, yeah. okay, we just got it. We've just got to get it. We've got yeah. to get a line in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way that these songs are then received. I mean, that's the thing that uh, I love about equal rights. The uh, mm-hmm. Connor, Connor planting the flag for uh, people that are gay. He's straight though. He's not gay. He's not gay. Yes. He's not gay. He likes sports. He's not gay. He likes Predator. <laughs> who, who doesn't? But it's just the reaction from Ringo Starr, which is, again, perfectly pitched, just sort of bemused and a bit like, he's saying it like they can't have it now. They do have it. It's legal. Yeah. <laughs> the, mis- the misguided, putting yourself forward. I think the interesting thing about Connor, though, is that he's flawed. He's not an asshole. There are a lot mm. of really nasty people in this film. But most people are just a bit dim trying to get by. I think the thing that's actually quite heartbreaking is watching Connor go through all of the reviews of this this highly anticipated second album, Conquest, of which he had 100 producers work on it, even though he wrote every single yeah. song himself, and going through the reviews. And it's just this wonderful, your, your classic kind of comic exaggeration where it's like, uh, Pitchfork gave me a minus for review. I mean, a negative review. That That's out of positive 10. Yeah, or Rolling Stone giving him the poop emoji. The poop emoji out of five stars. <laughs> <laughs> I also just, um, slight tangent here, but I really love the use of subtitles in this film, that they're actually mm. burnt in. I think that's really nice. Uh, obviously, I think regular listeners are aware that I, I dabble in uh, I dabble in the subtitling. And to see it burnt in, and particularly like tricky to hear moments, is really nice. And also gives forward to one of the best visual slash non-visual gags I've ever seen, which mm-hmm. is where Connor is in a particularly dark place and he's sitting there talking with Tony, his manager, and he asks the film crew to turn the cameras off, but they keep the audio mm-hmm. recording. And what happens is subtitles of the subsequent conversation and the audio. Mm. But then this huge kind of a bee attack happens yeah. <laughs> and you just hear absolute carnage and like which ends with oh my god that's amazing tell me you got that and the film crew are like no you told us to turn it off oh shit i um i watched this with the audio commentary um because i thought that it, I, I thought it'd be interesting get some insights and uh not really it's just the, <laughs> the three guys from the lonely island giving each other shit for, for an hour and a half which is uh revealing in its own way and i think I, I i really enjoyed it but they do that is one of the bits that they really talk about and the thing that i found really really great was that whole bit came from the fact that there was actually a bee that showed up and tim meadows says get that fucking bee out of here and then when they were putting the film together in the edit 
Uh, I think it was Jorma had the idea of like, well, what if we do that thing that they do in documentaries where they tell people to turn the sound off and then we just go absolutely fucking crazy <laughs> with <laughs> what happens when the screen is black. And uh, I just love that, that because they are, they also talk about the fact that a lot of shots in the movie, well, not, not a huge number, but some of them were literally like, one of them was coming home one day from the edit and they saw like a billboard for the movie that they had put up so they just shot it with their iphone and then the shot of owen's daft punk style helmet firing a beam of light up into space which is then viewed from a a plane that literally was just one of their assistants they said um we need a shot of just a skyline that we can superimpose a light onto and you happen to be on a plane right now can you just take some footage on your phone (laughs) and they use that and i just i just really like the fact that um from, from what they talk about it there there were lots of moments that just kind of grew out of necessity in the movie. Like, obviously, they had a script and they were working for it and they had a lot of general ideas of what they wanted to do, but there is uh, an organic process to it which really suits documentary filmmaking anyway. That approach allows you to kind of play around with the form in ways like that and just going to a black screen and having a bee attack occur in subtitles really does suit that idea. And I think that's partly their SNL training coming through, which Mm. is... What have we got right now? What do we need? What can we get out? Because we don't have enough time. You will never have enough time. You literally just have to kind of work with something as much as you can and then get it out there. And I think that sense of spontaneity really does come through well. I think the only scene, the only scene that I think is a little like an SNL sketch that would have been cut from after the dress is where Connor is testing the loyalty of his entourage and and Owen by making them eat pancakes with dog shit in them. That Mm -hmm. definitely felt like... You know, it was more function than fun. And I think yeah. it's quite a, I mean, what's what's funny about that? It's no it's no Van Wilder party liaison and uh, dog Stephen Eclairs, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I think it's not just their SNL training, but the fact that I think this film is partly about them and their friendship as well, seeing yes. as they have had exactly the same. They're talking about a sort of nightmare version of their rise to fame because the three mm. of them all grew up in the same place in California. They sort of broke off a bit, went to college, but then they all came back together. We're living in um, a flat, which they called the lonely Island. And that's how they've had their name ever since, which I think is ridiculously adorable. Um, mm-hmm. And the Coen brothers often talk about, I think there was an interview I read about inside Llewellyn Davis. And that was kind of the, the premise for that was them thinking, well, what if one of us died and how would we deal mm. with that? And that is about, the Coen brothers thinking about how they would grieve the other and how they could try and carry on artistically without their partner. And I think this is a lot to do with puncturing the fact that Sandberg is definitely the most famous of the three. Yeah. And it is a testament to their relationship that they're able to take the piss out of it so much. This is, this is how it could have gone, but because we're all really down to earth and we've been friends most of our lives and will continue to be, this is how we make it work to the point where I think with the exception of uh, Mrs. Andy Sandberg being Joanna Newsom, I think both Yorma Ciccone's wife, uh, Marielle Heller and uh, Akiva Shaver's wife, Liz Kakowski, both have cameos towards the end of the end of the film. Mm, Joanna Newsom does have one as well. Oh, shut the front door. How have I missed her? Where is she? 
She plays the woman who um, flatliners Bill Hader's character. She's wearing like a, a blue wig or something. But oh, yeah, like that's that's oh. one of the things that they point out on the audio commentary. Every time one of their partners shows up, they say like when Joanna Newsom shows up, they're like, that's jo- Joanna Newsom. And Andy Sandberg says, wonderful musician. And then they just go, and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> um, when Liz Kakowski shows up, he's like, very funny actress. Yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I find uh, incredibly adorable. And yeah, and when Marianne Heller shows up, it's like a uh, director of Diary of a Teenage Girl. <laughs> and the, they, don't, they don't have a home the oh. connection because I think uh, that's that's very lovely and supportive. Those them, guys are like. so... Oh, they're so cute. I love them. Yes, they're great uh, 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 in that regard. And that's something that really comes through on the audio commentary as well. They do clearly love each other a great deal and yeah. they've been friends for such a long time. And, and you're right, this is the funhouse mirror nightmare yeah. version of their story which is that one of them becomes way way more famous than the others and more recognizable but they're all still like immensely talented and supportive each other and know that they are essential to working together as a unit even as they all like go off and act in different things or write and direct movies on their own like they are still uh, necessary parts of this this unit that they form as uh, the Lonely Island, and also to go back to the the, pan- the shit pancake eating scene, that was another thing that they talked about on the audio commentary, which I thought was really funny, which was that scene, and, and you kind of pointing out as, as fairly like, I don't know, utilitarian, is that that was a suggestion from Judd Apatow, who threw it out there as like the worst possible idea for a scene. <laughs> <laughs> but in his version, it's like, well, maybe you just make them eat like shit waffles or something, is how they describe it. <laughs> And then they said, that's actually kind of our approach is like <laughs> someone gives us the worst possible idea and then we just try and take it seriously. And apparently like that's where a lot of the scenes in Hot Rod came from is like Seth Myers would throw out like the silliest idea and they're like, oh yeah, that, that's good. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, that's the scene that for me does kind of come off as a little bit, yeah, like it doesn't really fit the tone of the rest of the movie. And it really is just there to be one extra break in the chain connecting Owen and Connor, which is already, like, pretty frayed by that point. Yeah, I don't really see the shit waffles method, how to get your film made flying off the shelves and being on the bestseller mm. list anytime soon. But fair play to them for just kind of running with it. But you're right, that, that whole scene is kind of Owen really getting quite angry and standing up to Connor for the first time, really even though he's you know mm. been quite meek and quiet i guess he's like don't you know who i am and as lawrence says you know method man goes away does an album he's still part of the wu-tang clan uh, <laughs> which i think is one of the most adorable metaphors for loving your friends but letting them go so that they can come back <laughs> that i've heard of, mm. of recent years i i rewatched it today as as i've said before i, I watch this film pretty much every every month and a half so <laughs> I'm over my quota for this month, but I do not have a problem with that. And the amazing thing about coming back to it, because it is so inherently rewatchable, is there are so many jokes in it. And Mm. Lawrence saying that on the farm, I was like, oh, it's like I've heard that properly for the first time today, realising that when they have their reunion and, and Lawrence and Connor reconcile, they retrieve the Poppy Award from the tree and then fashion it into a bong. Because <laughs> uh, we 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 discover that Lawrence's farm is actually just this giant weed plantation. Mm. One of my favourite jokes is uh, 
where Lawrence announces on a megaphone, uh, I'm going to take the rest of the day to hang out with my friends, uh, keep on working hard and let's have a good harvest and just faintly <laughs> hear someone go, okay. <laughs> Why is that so funny? It just is. It just is. And then you can tell they must have had so much fun coming up with all the different names for the different uh, strains of, of weed that Lawrence is growing on his farm as he's, as he's ticking them off. And there's so many of them and he gets to like postpartum depression. And then you see something that is clearly not a jar of weed it, it, it is what it says on the tin frogges <laughs> we don't return to this there's no questioning it's just left there i yeah it's just and i think we should uh, have a little moment in terms of our celebration to celebrate the wonderful imogen poots who i yes. think is absolutely incredible in her rather small but incredibly pivotal role as ashley wednesday <laughs> who who plays connor's uh, girlfriend and eventually sort of fiance that's then botched up as a very um public proposal uh due to wolves hate it when that happens but she has this beautiful sweetness when she talks to the camera uh where she says you know oh when i was a little girl growing up uh i saw couples and people said oh are they really in love or are they together for the publicity and i just thought i would love to be one of those couples <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she she is incredibly funny and like she. I mean, she's really only like two scenes, but she absolutely kills it. And I think that's that's true of like basically everyone in the movie who only shows up briefly. Like, I I I don't know if I'd missed it before or if I'd only just seen it this time. But Martin Sheen shows up for one scene to punch Connor in the face, what? and it's just like it, it flies by so quickly. It's like what? Okay, I guess that happens in the movie. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, there's there's so many people like that. Like in, in the interviewees, like uh, Mariah Carey's very funny when she's yeah. like, I, I I love I'm so humble because I really related to it because I'm the most humble person I know. <laughs> <laughs> she's just like, she just kind of like throws it away. It's a, it's such a funny funny delivery. I think that's um, it. Like the only two people I would want to see, I would have wanted to see more from. Even even though you know it's not like. And I think it's it's better to be left wanting more. It's definitely uh, Imogen Poots as Ashley Wednesday and Joan Cusack as yes. Connor's mum. Oh yes. my god! <laughs> like more more Joan all the time, please. But yeah, it, it speaks a lot that she you know she wants this life of fame for herself and ends up living through her son vicariously. She's kind of a, a mm. strangely little sort of uh, dark pulse uh, in the baseline of Connor's character. Yeah, I I think also someone who I think. It would be nice to see more of just because they're really great throughout the whole movie is Sarah Silverman, oh my God, who yes. does is so funny in what could be such a utilitarian part as you know his PR kind of agent, but she does such a good job of being funny, but also like clearly caring about Connor yes. and Owen and Lawrence and. Uh, yeah, she's just also really cute. <laughs> oh, and, I, and I think they actually, in the film, sort of managed to address who's in it and who's not a little bit, because Maya Rudolph's aquaspin endorsement synergy agent, uh, Deborah, uh, in the finale Deborah. of the film, Deborah, sorry, Deborah, manages to uh, find herself in, in Connor's final kind of rousing voiceover at the end of the film. We have this slow-mo of everyone after their um, amazing comeback at the poppies and we just see Maya Rudolph like laughing her head off in a silver dress and Connor going why is Deborah here <laughs> yeah uh, she's she's also responsible for one of my favorite deliveries in the movie which is when 
she says, uh, it's Deborah. And I think Owen says to her, oh, where's that from? And he says, uh, I believe Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, yeah, again, another person who's just really great at showing up and throwing away uh, a line of dialogue and just making it uh, incredibly, incredibly funny. Uh, but, but also that kind of points to one of the things that I think really sets the movie apart, particularly... And it's interesting that it is produced by Judd Apatow, who I think is associated with a a certain shagginess in comedy. You know, movies being too long, scenes that perhaps could be cut a minute or two earlier and be sharper and punchier. The movie is so good at ending every scene on a good joke and knowing, like, okay, this is the joke that we can end on. We could riff on this idea for, like, another two minutes, but no, we're just going to keep going along. And the movie is, I think, 82 minutes long if you take out the credits. And that is such a lean and exciting and fun approach to to making a movie. And again, to go back to the audio commentary, like, the most recurring thing that all of the guys say is, like, they'll say, oh, you know, like, we, we had a different song here, but we, we cut it out because it wasn't really working, or, yeah. you know, this scene was longer, but we cut it down to kind of keep things moving. And I think that speaks to their... Maybe it speaks to their origins and, you know, as doing the digital shorts and being like, okay, these things are going to be three minutes long. We have to pack in as many jokes as possible and we have no room to do anything other than the thing we're trying to do. But I I think it's it's an approach that is sorely lacking from a lot of comedies being made at the moment. I completely agree. It's funny, though, because I do think you get little flashes of hot rod in um, Popstar because Mm. I still have a very soft spot for hot rod. It's by far yeah it's far from perfect it's definitely a sort of parachute job and it's a real shame because I think you know Pam Brady who I'm a huge fan of she wrote it originally and then there are these little kind of threads and and things put in and it does feel a bit patchwork as a film like you Mm. can tell oh we are coming to a lonely island sequence now and the one that really sticks out to me from Hot Rod is Cool Beans Mm -hmm. which is this bizarre kind of no explanation just this little flash in the pan of kind of remix of these this line of dialogue between two characters over and over again and it reminded me a lot of chris red's hunter is maybe taking responsibility or not for connor's uh wardrobe malfunction on stage there's this lovely that's the one riff that i think they allowed themselves and that really works because chris red is absolutely stunning in what he does with his eyes like it's all these very tiny micro motions as he's kind of looking around and down and up and then the dialogue and you finally rest on the fact that, oh yeah, no, he he totally did it. But he's really playing with Connor at that point because he's totally got him in the palm of his hand. And that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I think the the other bit in the movie where there's clearly improv going on are all of the brief cuts to the CMZ office there. Oh my God. TMZ with uh, Will Arnett, Eric Andre, Chelsea Peretti and Mike Babiglia where they're reacting to events in the movie and you know just kind of like coming up with the sort of really dumb obvious jokes that that kind of gaggle of hyenas that uh, form the basis of the TMZ shows uh, make but the with the added joke that they push it like way way further like to the point of absurdity like most of it is just Eric Andre psychotically yelling and shaking his body uh, <laughs> in like the way that only Eric Andre could do. And yeah. Will Arnett's character getting in, looking increasingly sad and taking sips out of 
different cups of drinks. Those giant is... cups with permanent straws in them and eventually he holds one up that's just been kind of like gaffer taped together. But even even that kind of like thread throughout the film has like an emotional payoff as they gradually realise how sad they are. Like Chelsea Peretti hasn't spoken to her mother in years. Mike Bethelia yeah, suggests and... they all hang out outside of work. Yeah, and and also they are, they even though those bits, it's clear that they must have just shot a bunch of stuff with those guys for like hours to kind of get a load of material for them to work from they deploy what feels like the funniest stuff and they only show up like okay here's 20 seconds of stuff that's happening in the cmz office and back to the main story and that that feels like the right use of that it's like okay we've got a lot of funny stuff here but what's the thing that is going to suit is going to better suits the overall story we're trying to tell and what is going to fit better in the movie like let's not just think okay what's the funniest possible scene we can come up here what's the funniest possible scene we could do which wouldn't make this movie three hours long if we just did that for every scene yeah it's like an album in that way it's all killer no filler it's all it's all just the hits it's none of the kind of b-sides or jamming and i think that's the problem as you and i have discussed a couple of times before and we've sort of touched on briefly here i think a lot of the films that come out of kind of the snl alumni in some way or another maybe lorne michaels is producing on them maybe he's not is that they do think that somehow like just the weird jamming and endless sort of improvisation is where you find the magic whereas for them no it's really slickly produced and made and it's lovely to see something that is so kind of tight and to the script mm, yes yeah there is there is no sense that they're going into except for yeah maybe the the cmz stuff there's no sense that they were going into scenes with no idea what they wanted to do they had a clear aim and they did like the funniest stuff and, and sometimes and some of the stuff like uh, they talk on the commentary about the scene where the group is like reunites at lawrence's farm and lawrence is and connor is trying to like apologize to Lawrence but he keeps trying to equivocate and then he realizes that he was the villain all along because he's like saying like hey I put in the work I was late that day but once I was there like I did everything I could I left early nope I wasn't there you're right (laughs) (laughs) you wrote the whole thing yourself (laughs) it's just like the way he he flips across there talking about how that was largely that was the first day they shot and that was largely them kind of like riffing and coming up with the idea of how this thing was going to flow yeah but the final version that they edit together feels like this short, sharp little character sketch of Connor finally allowing this lie that he has built for himself to separate himself from Lawrence to crumble as he re-examines it. And he's like, oh no, I was the bad guy in this story all along, shit. And he, and he just apologises. Like, it's actually lovely, yes. like, Connor goes through an arc. Like, he's he's not he's not a malicious asshole. He's too wrapped up in himself. And actually, like, the synthesis that he needs to get to is having Connor for real but also being part of the style boys and not forgetting where he came from and making peace with them so you know the way that he makes peace with Owen is actually very simple and it's not even that necessarily played for laughs he's just in the club in his uh yeah foolproof disguise uh watching Owen play and he's like you know turning to Sarah Silverman it's so freeing saying everything because no one can hear you over the music like equal rights was offensive <laughs> and so he does get to this point of self-awareness and all Lawrence ever needed was for him to say sorry and he does mm. and then they're together again which is really sweet yeah and and I think that does add like that the 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 fact that we 
have that extra layer of like okay this is like the nightmare version of their friendship like what if their friendship had splintered and then they were reunited i think that adds a genuine like poignancy to their reunion because we know that these guys are really great friends in real life and thinking like what how great it would be if they had had a separation and then they came back together and i think it does make the finale where they perform together again and they they perform incredible thoughts which is a oh, a, a great song that brings in obviously uh michael bolton to get to do the hook which is always uh always great when they work with him he's got his voice his voice is so ridiculous michael bolton like it's so he obviously has great control over it as an instrument but when he sings like an earnest serious song it just sounds silly like yes because he's so over the top so it, it, it's it's no surprise that when once they you know dig jack sparrow with him that they want to work with him again on this and then also the uh sexy valentine special that they did with oh, him for netflix yeah. like it, it, it that there's there's something about their approach to music and the, the particular timber of his voice that that works so well but but that the whole sequence does feel like genuinely triumphant and does make you make you want to like jump up and be like yeah they did it they're <laughs> doing the donkey roll on stage with Usher. <laughs> and like like the like the the, the the like you were saying about how this idea of the alternate history of them being this seminal band uh, <laughs> does does kind of rear its head again and makes you think yeah this does feel like a, a return of a great musical act i just bust out the donkey roll in clubs not that i frequent clubs much <laughs> I'll be honest, I do the donkey roll mainly as an alternative to yoga. <laughs> it's a full body workout. It, it totally is. The thing is that I'm interested in is whether they'll make a film next, because obviously, mm. as we said, Popstar didn't do fantastically well, which is a real shame, because I think he had absolutely all of the same qualities of something like Anchorman, which mm. did really well at the box office and got a sequel. And from what I can see, they're mainly kind of going back to TV and obviously uh, Andy Samberg's in Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Akiva Schaefer's directed an awful lot of that and I think Yorma Taconi's kind of popping in as well. They've also created, uh, which I haven't seen yet, but I'd really like to, um, a show called Alone Together. Mm, yeah, people say that's great. Millennials in LA, I'd really like to, but I also really want them to, I, w- I want them to make another film. I really do. I hope it's not like another couple of years until we get to see one because like you say it was their first original property and story and I don't know what I would want them to do but I still want them to do something because I think they are as we've mentioned Apatow quite a lot I think they're make they're bringing the best bits of Apatow and managing to kind of sweep away all of that chaff it's like Apatow belongs in tv and the Lonely Island I think are amazing at films which is crazy considering actually they both kind of started out <laughs> the other way around um mm. so i really love to see more tight hilarious and eminently quotable stuff from them in the future yeah i was i was trying to pass why exactly this didn't do better than it ended up doing like it, it earned 9.6 million on a 20 billion dollar budget which is you know n- not great. great um obviously it it, it earned less in the US than Hot Rod did when it came out seven years earlier, despite the fact that when Hot Rod came out, they were a less established quantity. Yeah. You know, they had only really just started getting big off SNL. And it makes me wonder if Hot Rod came out too early in their careers and maybe Popstar came out 
too late yeah. because they'd been off SNL for a few years by that point. You know, it'd been three years since the Whack album came out, which was their last album before the pop star uh, album came out, the soundtrack. And it just makes you wonder, like, if this came out in 2014 when they were still riding the high of, like, they just finished on SNL, they were ju- they just put out an album and yeah. they hadn't quite gone off into their own directions. Like, maybe it would have been, maybe not a runaway success, but, like, maybe it would have hit at a better point to have, you know, done done better than it did. Which, which is a shame. And, and it does kind of give the film, intentionally or not, like the feeling of almost being an epitaph for their career or for that period of their career because it combines so many of their past collaborators it uh, encompasses so much of their approach to comedy and their aesthetic that it makes you wonder if like maybe this is the last Lonely Island project we'll get or the last in this form that they're we're used to maybe they will just because they've they've all got like, I think they've all got families now. Certainly, yeah. Jorma and Akiva both have kids. Andy and Andy and Joanna welcomed one not that long ago, I believe. Yes. Uh, so there's, like, maybe it's just a case that, like, now, if they do another thing together, it will reflect the fact that they're all in very different places in their lives and that maybe pop star functions as kind of, like, a culmination of everything they've done over the previous 10 years. And, you know, if that is what it is and i think it's an absolutely stunning kind of ca- uh, capstone to uh, a really great influential period of of comedy because it's really hard to overstate just how much of an influence they had on on snl but also a lot of uh, internet comedy that's grown up since like I re- it really feels as if their work with like channel channel 101 and things like that really helped point a way for people who would then follow them and be like okay this is how you use the internet to get your comedy out there and this is like an aesthetic and a tone that you can use to get people's attention online and maybe break into the comedy industry through non-traditional means yeah yeah oh it would be it would be lovely to see what they glean from like the next stage in their lives i guess but yeah, because I'd love to see a This Is 40 from The Lonely Island. I think it would be probably still star Paul Rudd, let's be honest, because that man is <laughs> eternally 40 forever and ever. Yeah, uh, and before we go, uh, I think it would be remiss not to kind of say one of my favourite jokes in it, which is when they're listing the entourage of Connor and they have Danny Strong playing his perspective manipulator, <laughs> someone who stands next to him to make him seem tall. <laughs> in uh in photos and uh on tv which uh i think is just a a, a great conceptual gag uh in a stream of ones that are really really funny because they have things like two umbrella wranglers and they show that he has one person holding an umbrella over him in rain and one in sun uh, <laughs> and like like just the the pointing to the fragility of the ego of the incredibly famous which also is kind of underpinned by the fact that his his entourage like when he spectacularly misses a basket and like turns away they all cheer and it's like yeah buckets yeah, and all that. <laughs> yeah the fact that he uh I-, I think that's just one of the best like really fun throwaway jokes but which points to a deeper idea which uh is is kind of like the thing that pop star does does really well and the lonely island in general do really well and i would have to say i just have to add to that my favorite is of course a pun because 
that's how I'm wired is uh, Connor for real is mm-hmm. based on his name Connor Freel. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great one that I missed on first viewing, but on subsequent ones, it's like ah, oh, it's quite that's quite a nice little kind of thing that flies by. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to us on Stitcher, Player FM, iTunes, all the usual places. You can also listen to us on Spotify now, if, if that's your bag. And, you know, leave us a review, rate us, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Let me see that donkey roll. do, 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 do.